Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Chern, syndicated columnist and policy editor of the Bulwark, and I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center, and Damon Linker, who writes the Substack newsletter, Eyes on the Right. Our special guest this week is Josh Crosshar, Senior Political Correspondent at Axios. Welcome back, Josh. Welcome again to my regulars. We have a lot to get through this week. Busy, busy news week. Let's start with the Department of Energy revealing that it now believes the lab leak is the most likely source of the coronavirus pandemic. This has been the source of so much nonsense. I'm going to invite you to begin on this, Josh. The positions of the left and the right have been so locked in on this. It's as if nobody can evaluate facts without considering whether it advances their side's preferred narrative. Yeah, Mona, this is an example of how there's just such little nuance in our political discussions these days. And this has become an issue of political tribalism on both sides. And I was still stunned by some of the reaction on the left to the revelation that the Department of Energy is reevaluating its analysis and has minimal confidence or some, some, some degree of confidence that it's now the lab leak from Wuhan was the culprit of covid Talk show hosts from Stephen Colbert to a lot of progressive commentators continue to think that this is still not a big deal or still not a significant news development. And in the big picture, I think it's a reminder to have some kinds of intellectual humility when it comes to evaluating complicated issues where you don't have automatically a deep degree of expertise. I remember in 2020 when Tom Cotton you know, first raised the possibility that COVID was potentially from a a lab in Wuhan. And you had a lot of traditional media calling him a fringe conspiracy theorist, calling him anyone entertaining that idea as being racist. There was a lot of heat, not a lot of light. And there was a rush to just condemn anyone who disagrees as something of a partisan enemy. And a lot of mainstream papers have actually issued corrections from that period of time in 2020. And I think there's been a course correction, and I think there's been a lot of good done in how we kind of evaluate some new information and facts where we don't have the full story. But look, I think it's a reminder that, you know, not everything is black and white. There's a whole lot of nuance and the discouraging trend to just paint an issue in partisan terms rather than trying to get facts and develop the reporting to make a sound conclusion is, is, you know, it's part of a disillusioning trend in our political system. Right. Linda, admittedly, There were people who introduced racist elements into this fairly early, including Trump, and kept calling it the Kung flu or the China virus and so forth. So there was a little bit of that, no question about it. But when Tom Cotton simply said that one of the possibilities here is that there was a lab leak, I mean, it just happens to be the case that the city where this thing originated has one of the world's largest institutes of virology, where they were uh, looking into various kinds of uh, gain of function research, etc. He was lambasted. He was called a conspiracy theorist. The Washington Post ran a piece called Tom Cotton Keeps Repeating a Coronavirus Fringe Theory that Scientists Have Disputed. And uh, other mainstream 
outlets also sort of so-called fact-checked Cotton, attributing to him views that he didn't express. And uh, it was a pretty unimpressive performance. What do you think? Well, that's right. And I can remember at the time thinking, yeah, well, of course it could have. I mean, did it definitively come from a lab? Was it nefarious where the Chinese, I don't know what, suicidally deciding to unleash a virus that would wreak havoc on their own country as well as the rest of the world? Probably not. That does not make sense. But could there have been an accident in this lab that could have led to the spread of this disease? I mean, it just defies reason to think that this is an impossibility. So now we have the Department of Energy saying with not great confidence, but nonetheless saying they think it was the lab was the source. Uh, You have Christopher Ray saying that the FBI thinks that it was the uh, lab that was the source of the virus that spread and has killed so many people. And it just seems to me that particularly those of us who are very critical of Trump and the way he handled much of the pandemic, we keep saying, you know, let's look at the science. Let's look at the facts. Let's look at the evidence. Well, it's not conclusive, but to say that there's no chance that this came from anywhere but a wet market in Wuhan, I think is crazy. That's, to me, crazier than the thought that it could possibly have come from a lab. And the fact is, we just don't know, and we may never know. Yeah. Along those lines, Bill Galston, one of the reasons that we may never know is that China has not been cooperating at all with getting to the source of this virus. They released a little bit of data right at the very beginning of the pandemic, and then they clamped down and made it extremely difficult to find out what really went on. So that's part of the problem is that, you know, we have President Biden assigning all of our intelligence agencies to find out what they can and and evaluate the evidence. But most of the important evidence is in the hands of Xi Jinping. Absolutely right. And the Chinese have behaved from the beginning as though they had something to hide, which doesn't make the task of assessing the facts as they become available any easier. But as a couple of other panelists have already indicated, this is part of a larger story about our politics, where a narrative is constructed for political purposes. And facts that are inconsistent with that narrative, or even doubts that are inconsistent with that narrative, are simply disregarded or exiled to some epistemological closet, and the story rolls on. And it's hard for me to say that the contemporary media has done a very good job of pushing back against this trend. Too often, they are part of it, where a narrative line gets established, and then it's very difficult For contrary evidence to break through, certainly not to what used to be called page one. And all of this, in turn, is exacerbating the mistrust that average citizens have about everything that they're hearing. And it is reinforcing the tribalism that is a substitute these days for skepticism and common sense. This is not a good story that we're discussing. Yeah, Damon, on the right, you've had any number of contradictory themes that have been rolled out about the virus. You know, either it was 
no big deal. It was nothing. It was less serious than the flu. Or it was actually a Chinese biological warfare attack. Um, they don't seem to be hung up on consistency. No, not at all. And as uh, several of the panelists have been talking about, and Bill just prior to this, they've all noted variations on this theme that what happens is that you obviously, as always, you have a, a kind of universe of facts out there in the world, and we need the scientific method and reasoning to try to figure out what's going on, to have hypotheses and to test them. But the various narratives that crop up in the uncertainty that surrounds the hypotheses before we have a firm conclusion get sucked up into and wrapped up into the negative partisanship and polarization of the moment and narratives get formed and then each side has a stake in defending its position regardless of what the evidence the science eventually shows and this is tailor made in this case to really be bad because the virus clearly did arise from out of china and our relationship with china is quite tested at the moment over the last several years the country coming to realize that our hopes for a closer relationship uh, and liberalizing of China is not really taking place and that they are, in fact, our primary geopolitical rival and threat in the world and reassessing all kinds of things from kind of historical narratives about the end of the Cold War and triumph of liberalism to questions about the supply chain for various things, including pharmaceuticals all big issues and big problems and things that have to be addressed. But because it happened in China and the Chinese are never going to allow our scientists to go in and have a look around and they're never going to be completely forthright about what they know about it, we will never really know for sure. And it is worth noting that the Energy Department's conclusion about this being that the lab leak theory is probably correct, was stated with, quote, low confidence, which mm -hmm. means that's what they think happened, but they were quite forthright in admitting we don't really know for sure. This is the most plausible scenario out there, but we don't have enough evidence to stake high confidence in it. And in that kind of scenario, and you mix it with the polarization and the negative partisanship and the result is going to be these entrenched narratives where people can say pretty much anything they want, knowing that there's no one who has enough evidence on one side or the other to definitively prove them wrong. So it's a big mess. Yeah. Um, I just want to underline, though, something that Josh said, because I mentioned, you know, that CNN and others had run these sort of dubious fact checks on Tom Cotton and on this story in general. and. A number of outlets have issued corrections since then. So that is important. That is part of our search for truth that, you know, you have to be able and willing to acknowledge error and correct the record, which is something that Fox News is not really very good at doing. All right, let's turn to politics now. And I'm going to come back to you, Josh Kraushaar. Big race in Chicago for the mayoralty. And it's so interesting because, well, first of all, the incumbent didn't even make it through the first round. So she's out. Lori Lightfoot is out. And what is shaping up is a really classic left-right battle, but they're both Democrats. 
Yeah, Mona, get your popcorn out because this is going to be one of the most important tests, not just for the city of Chicago and its leadership and its ability to get the city back under control and get crime down, but it really is going to have loud ramifications for the future of the Democratic Party and whether the moderates within the party can reassert themselves and show that a tough-on-crime message and a message on school choice, education reform. Yeah. Paul Vallis is the more moderate uh, nominee for mayor who has been a lifelong Democrat, but at one point in 2009 called himself a Giuliani Republican back when Rudy Giuliani was a little more of a serious figure. <laughs> uh, and he is a centrist. You know, he's been called a sort of a right winger by people who don't like his politics, but he is very much within the centrist side of the Democratic Party, which was a lot more numerous, a lot more outspoken not that long ago. And his opponent is pretty much as good of a caricature of the far left activists that you could draw up in Cook County Commissioner Brandon Johnson. So Johnson in 2020 called very openly for defunding the police. Paul Vallis has called for 2,000 more cops on the beat in Chicago. Uh, Vallis was CEO of uh, the Chicago public school system and the New Orleans uh, school system, where he was a big proponent of school choice and accountability measures. Johnson got the endorsement from the very powerful and controversial Chicago Teachers Union. And you obviously have also the issue of race in this contest, where Vallis is white, a white moderate, and Johnson is African-American. And the big question to me as an analyst looking at this contest, you've got the ideological divisions, and you actually look at the African-American vote in that first round of balloting, and most Black voters stuck with Lori Lightfoot. Johnson actually did really well with the most white progressive elements of the city, and Vallis did well with moderates and what we used to call white ethnics Mm -hmm. in the outer areas of Chicago. And Lightfoot still did very, very well in the African-American community. So this race will be decided by African-American voters who are very concerned about crime. It's a big issue, especially in the south side and west side of the city. And whether they will vote on identity or whether they'll vote on the issues in this very consequential runoff. Right. So Damon Linker, Brandon Johnson has said that uh, even now, Josh mentioned that he was for defunding the police uh, three years ago. Even now, he says that he will not fill vacancies in the Chicago Police Department as they arise. And there have already been quite a few. They've lost a fair number of police. It's a matter of opinion as to whether they need to um, hire more. But he has said, quote, spending more on policing per capita has been a failure, unquote. Black voters are going to have to, you know, weigh in on this. And they are not in general, for defunding the police? No. And in fact, when you dig into what's often called the crosstabs of opinion polls over the last year on crime, you find that people of color typically are more concerned about it than white progressive voters. So this is not great. I mean, the whole issue about policing in urban areas is such a mess in our public life right now. It's quite despairing, but you know we have to push ahead and try not to despair. But the first step to doing that is recognizing that the solution is not to get rid of the police. It's to spend more on police and train them better and punish them when they abuse their power. And that is a kind of multi-pronged strategy that takes money and time and effort, and it means going head-to-head often with police unions, which is not 
easy or something Democrats are eager to do, in part because their unions are often bound together with other urban unions that are very deep within the Democratic uh, Party coalition. It's a big, complicated mess. But the answer is not to say, let's stop hiring police, let's have fewer police. The fact is that Black Chicagoans often live in areas with really terrible violent crime, and it is horribly unfair to them to have the government throw up its hands and say the solution is to basically let the criminals rule your neighborhoods. We worry a lot about harm from violence, from school shootings, and that is obviously a very serious problem. But what about the harm of raising generations of kids in neighborhoods where people are getting shot to death right outside where they live, even aside from the actual literal consequences being one of the victims of the spray of bullets that's going on there in the street, just the anxiety and fear and danger in people's daily lives, sending your kids out to the store, to school, to the school bus in a situation where you never know when the next shooting is going to erupt is atrocious, and all Americans should be appalled by this, and we need to address it. But again, the politics of it, especially in urban areas, with the combination of the kind of ideological attachment of certain white progressives to defunding rhetoric and ideas, combined with the lack of influence that the people who suffer from this violence have over the kind of democratic machine in these places where only a Democrat can win. It's just bad news. And I will be watching, as I'm sure we all will, as Chicago tries to find its way through this mess of a maze. Linda, I'm old enough to remember when I was first becoming politically aware, there was a term that can just as easily apply to today's progressives. It was limousine liberals, <laughs> right? It was people who were not themselves touched by urban crime because they went around in limousines, but they were very, very hostile to the police and to any measures that would make neighborhoods safer because it wasn't their problem. And it kind of does amaze me to see progressives walking into this trap again because Republicans were able to win elections for decades on being tough on crime. Now, I totally agree with Damon that, you know, we also need to focus on training police better and making sure that they're not abusive and making sure they don't violate people's rights and murder people, etc. But the message of defund the police or don't hire more police, I mean, that's such a trap that at least some parts of the Democratic Party are just walking straight into, like into an open manhole. Well, that's absolutely right. And the politics of this race uh, was very interesting. I mean, here you have a organizer for the Chicago Teachers Union, an organization I know well, having worked for the uh, American Federation of Teachers, of which the CTU is an affiliate for many, many years. He's running against the former head of the school system. And Yet it doesn't seem to be schools that were at issue, although that certainly uh, should be an issue in the city of Chicago because education is very troubled in Chicago. But the point is that crime is what's driving all of this. And, you know, blacks may have stayed with Lori Lightfoot for whatever reason, and 
racial solidarity might have been one of them, and perhaps they will transfer their votes now to Johnson. But it's hard to believe that Blacks who are the largest victims of crime are not also very concerned about what has happened in their city. I mean, the number of deaths, shooting violence, uh, the right loves to point out whenever there's a mass shooting, oh, well, more people were shot in Chicago last weekend than in the you know most recent uh, mass shooting, which is, I don't think, a fair comparison. But the point is, there are a lot of deaths on the street of Chicago. But it is going to be interesting to see what power the unions have this time. They are very effective organizers. And I think uh, Ballas is going to have a race on his hands. If you look at the numbers in terms of the initial vote, it doesn't look like it. He's got almost twice as large a percentage of the vote as Johnson did. But that's before perhaps the organizing could take place. But even the union politics are interesting because, of course, Vallis also had a union endorsement, but it was the police union, not the right. teachers. And union. there are a lot more teachers, right? Or are there? I'm not sure. Are there a <laughs> yes, lot more I, teachers than there are uh, cops? Yes, I would. Th- I would think so. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But um, <laughs> doesn't necessarily mean that just because the union, no. you know, endorses that they're going to vote. And by the way, a lot of the teachers in the city of Chicago probably do not live in the city of Chicago, so they, right. they may pay dues to the Chicago. Teachers Union, but they may not be voters in Chicago. Right, right, right. Okay. Bill Galston, so this issue is already being seized upon by Republicans, of course. And we, we saw Ron DeSantis, for example, who's on a book tour, haha, spoke to police in New York City, in the Philadelphia suburbs, and in a Chicago suburb this week. Well, indeed he did. I have a prediction that if Paul Vallis becomes the next mayor of the city of Chicago, taken in tandem with Eric Adams' victory in New York City, that is going to have a very sobering effect on the Democratic Party. And I think will probably reinforce Biden's instincts to shift in that direction and to avoid anything that could be seen as signaling weakness on crime. But do forgive me, Mona and faithful audience, if I roll up my sleeves and do a little nitty-gritty political analysis of Chicago, a city I've come to know very well. I did my graduate work there, as did my wife. My son and daughter-in-law and grandchildren live there. My wife was born there. And I've studied it pretty carefully. The beginning of wisdom is to understand that the story of Chicago is no longer just a black-white story. Whites are 33% of the demography of Chicago, but Hispanics actually outnumber African Americans in the city of Chicago. Hispanics now have 29% of the vote, uh, and blacks have 28% of the vote. And so we really can't analyze the prospects of the two candidates without looking at the way the largest minority group in the city voted. And the Hispanic candidate, Jesus Chuy Garcia, finished a pretty weak fourth with 14% of the vote. He did, however, carry six wards, the wards in Chicago with the densest concentrations of Latino voters. And in five of those six wards, Vallis actually finished second, not either 
of the two leading black candidates in the race. Why is that? Well, there was a Donnybrook over the redistricting of the Chicago wards in 2020, and the bulk of the contest was between blacks and Hispanics for control of swing wards, and it was a bruising battle that left a lot of hard feelings, particularly on the Hispanic side, because they felt that they did not get their share of pluralities in the wards. And it is certainly possible that the lingering feelings from that competition will lead some Hispanic voters to opt for Vallis rather than uh, Johnson. If that happens, then Vallis will no longer be dependent on humongous turnouts in white districts, largely in the far northwest and also in the southeast and far west which is his base of support. One other thing to point out, the black vote did stick with Lightfoot for the most part, but her margins in the wards that she won were unimpressive, and even more significantly, turnout in those wards was miserably low. And uh, Lightfoot did very poorly in the wards with high turnouts and did her best in the wards with low turnouts. So if African-American enthusiasm doesn't increase, and if Johnson is not able to capture the imagination of black voters in Chicago, which is certainly possible for the reasons that Linda, among others, has pointed out, that would be another indication of a likely Vallis victory. And to come back to the beginning of this soliloquy, I think a victory of someone who is tough on crime and in favor of school choice would send a very loud signal to the Democratic Party. Yeah. Damon, what's your view on this? I mean, add that to you know the victory of Eric Adams in New York and the cashiering of Chesa Boudin in San Francisco. And uh, you've got, you know, a lot of messages coming from the Democratic Party's own voters suggesting what they prefer. Yeah. And also what we've seen happened in Portland and throughout the Northwest. It's happening in places around the country, where as always, you know, there's never any ending in politics. So we're always kind of in the middle of the game. And we don't know how this one in Chicago will turn out, but the pieces are definitely in place for a possible outcome that does send that kind of message. And I think it would be a very positive one for the Democrats and for the country as a whole. To go back to my despairing cry in my earlier comments, the problem of urban crime and safety in public areas is a major problem and something that we have to address as a society. And the first step toward doing it, I think, is to reverse some of these trends that have allowed it to fester as badly as it has. Josh Kraushar, you had a, um, a note in Axios this week where you were taking note of some recent polling. And of course, it's still super early. And still, it's interesting that these, in contrast to the ones we saw a week or two ago, these do not show Ron DeSantis performing that well against Donald Trump, rather the opposite. Yeah, these are four pretty reputable pollsters that 
not just showed Trump ahead of Ron DeSantis by double digit margins, but I believe in every single one of them showed Trump expanding his support over DeSantis over the last month or period of time since the last poll they took. And it coincides, frankly, with a pretty good stretch of about a month for Donald Trump as he adjusts to being a candidate again. He's not doing these big mega rallies, which uh, certainly are filled with lots of adoring supporters, but it forces him to do sort of the give and take of retail politics and actually have conversations and show empathy and do the things that... Well, uh, let's not get carried away, Josh. Empathy? <laughs> we're grading on a curve here, Mona. This is, uh, as, as I said in the story, the, at least by Trump standards, yeah. we're, we're judging by. But no, you're right. But look, he, I thought it was smart politics to go to East Palestine, yeah. Ohio uh, last week ahead of the president, ahead of transportation secretary, Pete Buttigieg, you know, he had Trump water and the Trump hats, you know, the, the classic kitsch, yeah. but he also did show the, as best as he could, some empathy. And he went to a McDonald's uh, after the event and took some pictures with the retail staff and, you know, kind of did the things that frankly got him on the radar politically in the first place when he ran for president in 2015. Look, you're absolutely right. This is a snapshot in time. Ron DeSantis hasn't even announced his candidacy yet. We have a long, long way to go. But I think the lesson, as I wrote in Axios, is the notion that Trump is just going to go away. The notion that he's not a candidate. That you, If you're Nikki Haley, if you're Ron DeSantis, if you're Mike Pence, you don't actually have to say his name, I think is very, very mistaken. And we learned that in 2016 when there was an assumption among most Republican campaigns that it was a phase that Trump's success was going to go away on its own, and everyone was focused on attacking each other. And we're seeing that exact same dynamic in the early stages of this 2024 contest. And if anything, these polls underscore the fact that someone is going to have to challenge the former president himself. They can't just pretend that his supporters and even soft supporters, people who are going to be shopping around for a candidate, are not ultimately going to land with Donald Trump in the end. Damon, I think you experienced this week something that I've experienced in a, to maybe to a lesser degree also, but there is a species of person out there on sort of progressive Twitter who, you know, if you just even say anything remotely along the lines of, I don't like Ron DeSantis, but he is not as bad as Trump, you will get, you know, fire and brimstone rained down on your head. So you you had a piece this week. Why don't you talk about that and the reaction? And uh... <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I, I wrote a piece for uh, the New York Times that was itself a response to things that I had seen published. There were a couple of pieces in Vanity Fair, one in the New Republic in the last month or so, all making variations in the case that. Ron DeSantis is going to be just as bad as or worse than Trump. And I've also seen lots of people more informally just on Twitter asserting this. And this strikes me as wrongheaded. Now, obviously, it's not a slam dunk obvious case, but I wanted to kind of build the case for saying that as bad as DeSantis is and probably will be going forward, Trump brings equal badness on policy initiatives combined with distinctively bad things that are wrapped up with who Trump is, his character, his maliciousness, his capriciousness, the fact that he 
has total contempt for the rule of law, tried to overthrow the government, make himself a dictator, had a self Just for starters. You, 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 you've heard of these things. Um, <laughs> and so I wrote this piece uh, that said in it several times, yes, DeSantis is bad. But what happened is, in addition to the phenomenon you referred to at the top about how there are certain people who assume if you don't say Ron DeSantis is evil incarnate and the worst Republican to ever walk the face of the earth, you must be saying, actually, DeSantis is pretty good. Yeah. But then the New York Times, in one of their iterations of the piece, put a headline on the piece that was something like, my fellow liberals are exaggerating the awfulness of Ron DeSantis, which, oh, which on one level is accurate to the piece, because I was saying that relative to the awfulness of Trump. It made it sound like the point of the piece was to say, hey, DeSantis isn't so bad, which right, then right, fed right. into that tendency. So I had swarms of hundreds of very angry liberals attacking <laughs> me for days. Because the Times is, has such a, an impact and other people would discover the piece and like it and then tweet it out. And then another round would surge up. And, you know, my feeling about all of it, as unpleasant as the experience is, I do think that it's had the intended effect of beginning a debate that sort of has been raging now all week on this question of exactly how bad is DeSantis and how bad is Trump. And when it comes to things like political tactics, you know, when DeSantis stands up and says, as he says regularly, what I'm doing about these Florida public universities, all I'm saying is that the voters of Florida are taxpayers, that these are public institutions, they should have a say in what they teach and who they hire and fire, which sounds very reasonable, I think, to a lot of people. And then the liberal response is not actually universities are centers of learning and they need freedom of academic pursuit of the truth and government shouldn't be involved in that, making some kind of rational case. Instead, they scream fascist. Yeah. I fear that this is going to have the effect of a lot of kind of ordinary low information voters scratching their heads and going, what? Yeah. This sounds, you, you sound crazy, you liberals. What are you saying here? So, my message very often tends to be calm down. Mm, <laughs> and, yeah. uh, uh, you know, that's not the kind of thing that in and of itself gets a lot of traction online. But a lot of people screaming at me and then me calmly saying calm down in response does get some attention. So at least I've had that impact, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, Linda, one of the things that has arisen in the last week, in addition to Damon stimulating that particular debate is the question of whether DeSantis is too much on the autism spectrum to appeal to voters, whether he's too nerdy, he's not funny, he's not enjoying himself, he doesn't make audiences laugh. And this has been a subject that I've seen batted around a lot this week. Whereas everyone says, look, you know, say what you will about Trump being a villain, at least. For his audience, he was entertaining and they had fun at those rallies and he made them laugh. And DeSantis is too grim and dour. I don't necessarily buy this. What do you think? No, neither do I. Um, okay. I do think that, look, he's not 
all that appealing. Meatball Ron, as I think the Bulwark uh, had in the headline, and I think that's one of uh, Trump's that's designations. That's Trump's nicknames, right? yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's got, I think, a rather unfortunate voice, and uh, people make a lot of mileage out of things like height in candidates or looks mm-hmm, in candidates. Mm-hmm. Voice is very important as well, and his is not a very fortunate one. You know, I don't think he is the kind of person that you would, in any stretch of the imagination, call charismatic. And again, for whatever you think of him, and as you know, I don't think much of Donald Trump, he did attract people. He did pull people toward him. And I don't see DeSantis doing that. On the other hand, I think that Republicans, or at least those who are not part of the hardcore MAGA base, are looking for competence. They are looking for someone who can articulate policies that are right of center, maybe even very right of center, but do it in a way that is not quite as ham-handed as Trump did. And there, I think, you know, DeSantis may have some appeal. And uh, while CPAC is going on uh, this weekend, in Washington, D.C., DeSantis is not going there. Many of the other people who are being talked about, including Mike Pence, are not going there. Instead, they're going to go to a a meeting of donors that the Club for Growth is putting together. And so, you know, there clearly is a lane for Ron DeSantis. Whether he'll make it all the way through, I mean, we just don't know these things. It's, you know, it's hard to imagine. Uh, I can remember way back when, when uh, Jimmy Carter, you know, first threw his hat in the ring. I was like, Jimmy who? Nobody knew who he was. Nobody could imagine that the peanut farmer from Georgia was going to even become the nominee, much less president of the United States. So it's very early out, but certainly Republicans, at least a portion of the Republican Party is looking for an alternative to Donald Trump. And at the moment, at least, Ron DeSantis seems to be the favorite in that group. Bill, most people think that whatever DeSantis's strengths as a candidate, and he's certainly very canny as a politician, um, the day will come inevitably when he will have to confront Trump. He will have to take him on directly. And that's a big unknown, big black box about what the outcome of that will be. But I will just present to you the results of some focus groups over the last couple of weeks where Republicans, hardcore Republicans, were asked about Trump's attacks on DeSantis, and they didn't like it, which is interesting. It suggests that for the first time, Trump might be finding some resistance even among his own followers when he goes into attack mode against somebody, because DeSantis has established himself in the minds of even MAGA Republicans as being someone they like. I think that's right. And I absolutely agree with the proposition that at some point, DeSantis, if he wants to be a serious candidate, let alone a winning candidate, is going to have to go toe-to-toe with Trump, and it will be more than entertaining to see how he manages that competition. But there's a question that interests me even more, and it's this. Will any candidate stand up and articulate the values and programs that 
I associate with the Republican Party that attracted you and Linda to its service decades ago. Is someone going to make that case? If so, who and how? We've seen bits and pieces of it. Certainly, they're the beginning of a serious division in Republican ranks over Ukraine and mm-hmm. sustained American support for Ukraine. And there, there are indications that Mike Pence, for example, is going to articulate what I'll call the McConnell line, you know, which is very full-throated and internationalist in the Reagan tradition. But I don't need to tell you or our listeners that the older Republican Party is more than a foreign policy. It's also a set of assumptions about the economy, the role of government in the economy, the role of the American economy in the world economy, and of course, the role of America in the world. And by the way, the role of patriotism, inclusion, immigration, and a number of other important historical factors in building America. And above all of that is the question of whether conservatism has a human face, even a friendly and agreeable face, or presents the face of anger to the electorate and the world. And I am pretty sure that there's a portion of the Republican Party that will continue to respond to that message. And the question in my mind, to go back to the beginning of this comment, is whether anybody will stand up and seriously articulate that message and be prepared to defend it against the new base of the Republican Party. I'm going to toss this to Josh Kraushar, and uh, I'll just add this comment, which is, I do agree with Bill that there's probably still a constituency out there for some of those things that republicanism used to stand for. I'm not sure, though, that on immigration in particular, which is unfortunate because it's really dear to my heart, but I don't know that anybody in the Republican Party these days would dare make the case for more legal immigration. What do you think? Well, I think Bill hit the nail on the head, which is that there's a divide within the Republican Party on some of these core issues, foreign policy, first and foremost, trade, immigration. And going back to the Ron DeSantis conversation, I think the challenge DeSantis is going to face is how he triangulates effectively, if at all, between the MAGA wing of the party, which in my estimation is ascendant, it's growing, whether Trump is there or not, versus the old school conservatives, the traditional Reagan conservatives that uh, until recently made up the the lion's share of the party. And, you know, the debate over funding and supporting Ukraine until the end is one of those fascinating divides that is literally, if you look at the public opinion polls, splitting the party in half. Maybe a majority of lawmakers are, are still on the side of making sure money and military aid is continuing indefinitely, but the voting Republican public is moving in the other direction. And Ron DeSantis gave this extremely awkward interview where he was trying to have it both ways. He started out by sort of talking about how Biden was weak in Afghanistan and wasn't hawkish enough. And by the end of the interview, he kind of ended up echoing a whole lot of MAGA talking points about Russia not being a threat to the global order. And look, that's a real red flag for the DeSantis uh, emerging campaign that this guy's brand is that he knows what he stands for, that he's taking on all the enemies on the left. 
And on such a core issue, or at least a core issue substantively, the fact that he can't figure it out. And I, I talked to his campaign and they were, after that interview, they just did not want to talk about it, foreign policy at all. They were very nervous about weighing in any further. That is not a good sign. This is a guy who's going to be on in the big leagues if he runs for president and makes the announcement. And the fact that that big issue was such a tricky task for him both shows his challenges and also the challenges between these two wings of the Republican Party that have increasingly irreconcilable differences. Yes, well said. All right, let us then move to the final segment our highlight or lowlight of the week, Linda Chavez. Well, there was a major expose in the New York Times over the weekend about migrant children who were working in unbelievably dangerous, brutal jobs. And it was an expose that was based on interviews, I guess, with more than 100 different migrant child workers in 20 states. The expose talked about children who were working in factories late at night, some of them working on the overnight shift, tending a large industrial ovens where they could be harmed working on assembly lines where they were stuffing into bags things like Cheetos and other snacks, children as young as 12 years old being up on top of a roof and working as roofers in various places. It was horrifying. And it sparked a major response from the Biden administration, which I think was a good response, which is to appoint a task force to take a look at how child labor laws are being flouted in many places. But I think the article itself pointed out to me how little we understand what the challenges are for this population. There were over 120,000 unaccompanied children who came into the United States in 2022. They work through the system very quickly, spend about 30 days under the auspices of the Office of Refugee Resettlement, and then are essentially farmed out either to relatives or to foster homes. And then basically nothing much is done. There's not much follow-up. These children are not eligible for any of the kind of nutrition programs that we make available for poor children across America. And it's not surprising that many of them end up feeling they must work. Some of them may be forced into work. Some of them may end up working just because they feel an obligation in the households they live in to contribute, which is both a cultural factor and is something that Immigrants, you know, I'm sure of those people on the program or listening who had immigrant grandparents or great grandparents, some of them came as teenagers and they came here not to go to school, but to work. So there's nothing new about this story, but it was horrifying. It reminds us what a problem this is and how difficult it is to solve it. The article was called Alone and Exploited Migrant Children Work Brutal Jobs Across the U.S. by uh, Hannah Dreyer. Thank you for that. Okay, Josh. My highlight of the week is uh, a podcast from Barry Weiss, where she interviews the former governor and presidential candidate, former governor of South Carolina, Nikki Haley, where one of the more interesting exchanges I've heard from Nikki Haley in talking about taking down the Confederate flag as governor in 2015 in the aftermath of the horrible mass murder at uh, Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church. She talked about how she united the state in the aftermath 
of that awful shooting in her introductory video, but she did not talk about taking down the Confederate flag. And she did not mention that in her kickoff speech, but she speaks extensively about that episode in great detail and with a real sense of leadership that you haven't heard writ large on the campaign trail. And look, Haley is not the front runner for the Republican nomination, but it's that type of outspokenness. And when she talks about sort of muscling these recalcitrant conservative lawmakers in South Carolina who in the state house were refusing to take down the flag. And there was an episode where she says that they were willing to take down the flag, but they wanted to keep the poll, the old poll <laughs> up. Uh, and she refused to accept that compromise. And she stood up for her principles um, and talks about her own childhood and her father facing discrimination in South Carolina. Maybe that stuff doesn't play in a Republican primary, but that's the type of rhetoric from Nikki Haley that I think could really get her a lot of attention and, and really add a little more meat on the bones to her talking points on the presidential campaign trail. Yeah, that was um, arguably her finest moment in public life. And I noticed that she had omitted it from her um, announcement video. So it's interesting that she did at least talk about it with Barry Weiss. All right, interesting. Bill Galston. My highlight takes me back to the Windy City, indeed to the mayoral contest. People may not know it, but this is not the first time Paul Vallis has run for mayor of Chicago. He ran the last time, came in ninth with 5.4% of the vote. This time around, he got 34% of the vote, which is in a multi-candidate field, a very, very strong showing, although as we discussed earlier, no guarantee of results in the runoff. My point is, I am a pretty unabashed Paul Vallis fan. I've tracked his career as the CEO of a number of public school systems. He has been a brave and effective leader. In my judgment, for the two major problems that the city of Chicago faces, criminal justice and public education, he is the right man at the right time. And I am encouraged to believe that the citizens of the city of Chicago are coming to the same conclusion. So that's why he is my highlight of the week. Okay. You're not on the fence then, Bill. Uh, okay. Damon Linker. Well, um, those uh, who are listeners and uh, subscribe to my Substack have heard about these two pieces there, but I want to plug them here because they're both very good. You actually get two for one today from me. These are a couple of essays about people who are really on the anti-liberal right. None of this, you know, hemming and hawing, Trump, DeSantis, this kind of stuff. These are people who, in one case, a philosopher who became a devoted Nazi and another one who remained at arm's length from the Nazi party but still had definite anti-liberal right-wing leanings and influence in the Weimar period of Germany and in the years of Hitler's reign. The first of these essays is a very good long piece in Quillette titled Heidegger's Downfall by historian Jeffrey Herf. He's reviewing a book by historian Richard Wollin titled Heidegger in Ruins. It compiles the latest 
evidence of Heidegger's not just complicity with national socialism in that period, but really a rabid enthusiasm for it that was much worse than has been known for much of the intervening years where the review recounts the way his record had been whitewashed in his collected works in German and other things. Really recommend this essay, Heidegger's Downfall by Jeffrey Herf and Quillette, and then also a very good essay in Harper's titled History's Fool by Thomas Meany. This is uh, subtitled The Long Century of Ernst Junger, who was a very prominent interwar writer uh, who was a decorated veteran from the First World War who went on to become quite a literary smash in the years leading up to the Nazi takeover in kind of glorifying and aestheticizing the experience of the war and really created a hunger for rearmament of Nazi Germany and then the kind of redemptive violence of war, seeing that as an answer to all of our problems like, you know, liberalism, things like that, boring little liberalism. But Ernst Junger was an important writer and this is an excellent essay about him. So for listeners who want to, you know, do some deep reading in these themes, I recommend both essays very highly. Thank you. All right. I want to draw attention to a piece that appeared in The Economist. It was noting the publication of a study that appeared in a, an academic magazine, NBER, and it was titled Opiates of the Masses Question, Deaths of Despair and the Decline of American Religion. And um, this is addressing a point that I've been interested in for many, many years because there was a tremendous assumption that really came to a head during the rise of Trump that the source of middle class anxiety in America and middle class dysfunction and the rise of suicides and deaths of despair could be attributed to either deindustrialization, the loss of factory jobs. Or alternatively, another very popular theory is that, especially noting that a lot of these suicides and deaths of despair are happening among white middle-class people, the idea was that they have some sort of fear of becoming a minority in this country and that that is the source of a lot of this despair and anxiety. Well, I've always been skeptical about that, and this study tracks the attendance at religious services and deaths of despair. And notices there's a strong correlation. In other words, the more that people actually attend religious services, the lower their rates of deaths by suicide and other deaths of despair, you know, drinking yourself to death or drug overdoses and so forth. And it looked at the fact that, for example, the opioids that are often cited as the uh, cause of these deaths, that these started before the opioids really became a thing. And uh, anyway, it it's very interesting. Of course, it tends to support my view that people need other people and they need social interaction and they need to be part of a community and a family. And the more people become atomized and alone and lonely, the worse off they are psychologically. And this study tends to support that point of view. So, of course, I'm highlighting it because that's what I think. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I will uh, we'll, we'll post a link and you can make up your own mind. 
With that, I would like to thank Josh Kraushar for joining us. And I want to thank, of course, our sound engineer today, Joe Armstrong, our producer, as always, Katie Cooper, and our wonderful listeners. We will be back next week, as every week. Thank you.